Few figures loom as menacingly in modern American culture as the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, the notorious predatory killer and home invader who terrorized Los Angeles and San Francisco in the mid-1980s. He seemed to suddenly appear out of nowhere, bringing chaos and destruction before disappearing back into the shadows, but Ramirez wasn't an external malignancy. He was a deadly organism grown in the petri dish of the American post-war psyche. He emerged out of the oven as fresh and American as apple pie. He was a one-man diabolus in cultura, a, cal a calamitous convergence of symphonic societal notes emerging through a single broken instrument, a dreadful and tragic manifestation of the unhealed wounds inflicted by his nation's recent brutal wars. The Ramirez didn't just manifest the psychic damage of Vietnam in World War II, he brought the war home, directly laying waste to American households and leaving them like his own defective home and psyche, a shattered, desolate battlefield. This is the golden age of serial murder. Hi, I'm Simeon, and with my co-host Toby and our guest Jake Flores. Jake is a comedian from El Paso, Texas, living in New York, who hosts the very popular podcast Pod Damn America, and has recently released his uh, new comedy album, 2021, Bad Omen. Jake tours throughout the country, and has recently did a show in Austin, Texas. One of the biggest cases we're probably going to do in this whole series, we've done some lesser-known figures, we've done some heavy hitters, as some people call them. This is one of the heavy hitters. And this guy terrified America in a way that few others have, more so even the Son of Sam, particularly Los Angeles and San Francisco. And Sorry, guys, I had to get my cat in. He was uh, missing. He was outside and he came back. Um, but anyway, so... Yeah, he, this guy was the biggest case in the 1980s. At the time, uh, just absolutely terrified California and uh, mostly Los Angeles, but also San Francisco, where I was born and I was a baby when he was invading homes in San Francisco. I think it was the only case I, I ever heard of as a kid. I wasn't paying attention to stuff as a kid. My parents, my dad at least, was aware of him. But yeah, he, he was someone, I think, who, as you will see, he was hard. To, he was uh, really baffling to the investigators because he didn't seem to fit any model of what they call victimology. You know, he didn't seem to have like that one type of person. He goes out. Uh, cases obviously happened in California. Richard Ramirez was born on February twenty eighth, nineteen sixty, um, in El Paso, uh, in southwestern uh, Texas, um, bordering New Mexico. Uh, he grew grew up in Lego Street, a, a block long um, uh, sort of hedge with sort of rusty cars and fences and masked by El Paso's uh, skyscrapers. Uh, so he sort of grew up in a kind of um, sort of poor, poor background um, in, in El Paso. Um, by age nine, uh, Richard was becoming a loner, which was drawn from his family. But he was considered to be uh, a nice kid. Uh, he was well-liked by other members of his family. D didn't really, in his early childhood, have any history of like much violence or like relationships to the, the police. But... Um, Things would change as he got. Well, away. what I would say is is that things 
are bad from or, and I think there's another case similar we did in our third episode with Peter Curtin but even more so this is a case where absolutely everything going wrong together because you have to start with a number of things before his when he's a little kid uh, or at least before he's age of nine and the first thing you have to mention is is that his family history the genetics is really really a disaster because um there's violence on the male uh, side of his, uh, you know, his father, grandfather, great, great. It keeps going back on the male side of his family for generations are violent, um, unstable people. Um, and then you have his, his, um, his brother's a juvenile delinquent, obviously his cousin, we'll, we'll get into later, who's may as well be the, the co figure, uh, figure of this. this. This episode is about Richard Mears, but it's also about his cousin, Mike. And then his brother-in-law is a peeping Tom introduces him to at 12. But before that, um, you have to look at the fact that he, um, that uh, his family came from a place that was affected by a nuclear testing, um, and also his mother, when she was pregnant with Richard, she worked. She worked in a factory. She had a factory job, and when she was uh, pregnant, she was working, and there were fumes, really dangerous fumes for pregnancy that she was breathing in and possibly giving to Richard um, while she was working there. The family was, uh, you know, poor. Um, uh, you know, a Mexican-American family and uh, El Paso, Texas, that this is kind of like a, almost like an unofficial Mexican city. And um, so and so I think he has this bad genetics and then possibly brain damage when he was uh, in utero. And the thing about it is, on top of that, when he's a little kid, he has several uh, serious head injuries. And this is a huge factor in so many serial killers, the head injuries. It, it It's a really huge deal. And even people who don't have that, and, and particularly head injuries in very early on in life when the brain is really developing. He has a large, um, heavy radio fall off a dresser and land on his head, direct, direct hit on his head when he was like two years old. Uh, and he had several other head injuries when he was a real little kid. And that causes him to develop epilepsy, multiple forms of epilepsy, including temporal lobe epilepsy, which is associated with all manner of psychotic problems, I think. It's possible that if you're a fan of Pink Floyd, that Sid Barrett uh, likely had it. It is connects to other things that connect to, to it, um, but it can in much more serious disturbances as well. Uh, he has effectively psychotic problems that develop as he goes through his life. And a lot of it's due, due to the head injuries. And his father was someone, Julian, I think his father's name was. His mother's name was Mercedes. And, and uh, Julian would bang his head against the wall until it bled out of rage. There's just some sort of incredible um, violence and uncontrollable rage, uncontrollable impulse in, throughout running throughout the, all the male members of his family. And so you have all these different things, um, the biology, the early childhood development, the, the later socialization, these later, you know, he, he's a hardcore drug user as a young kid. So there's so many different things in his case that you can point to. Um, but I think this is a case of really like a Frankenstein's monster. This is a case of someone being built in a lab to be what they became, uh, by a combination of nature and by, and his, and, um, the environment and his, and his influences and, uh, and, and, and particularly his cousin, but everyone in his family, I think has a, either negative influence or fails to arrest it. And, uh, whether, and, you know, from, from all these different causes, you have what arises this absolute, you know, just a monster of a person. But I think like a, I said, like an organism out of a lab, like they're doing it, you know, something that gets, that comes out of a Petri dish. This guy is, I think, I think less a, a, a person more than a, a combination of all these different things that make essentially 
uh, a monster uh, created by society that gets unleashed back onto society. Yeah, so he'd have like mouth seizures, as Simulus talked about. Like he'd see monsters creeping past windows outside of his house uh, as a result of the epilepsy, and he developed a really active um, imagination and um, subconscious life uh, because of this. Wow, I didn't know that one about the fumes. I knew a few of his factors, uh, but that's hey, he really never had a chance, huh? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know what, what type of uh, role you can ascribe to his decision-making in this, but by the time he's a ki- he's is able to make his own decisions, his brain is severely disordered. And, you know, um, Toby, I think you said grand mal seizures, not mild seizures. They weren't, you know, uh, th- these were very severe seizures when accompanying uh, hallucinations. And, um, and, and on the other thing, that, the side of this that, that's going to keep coming up in this case also is he came, is he came from a very religious family. And, of course, there's this quality to uh, the Mexican uh, culture um, that is sort of like suffused with this combination of hyper-religiosity but also with um, this kind of morbid fascination with death in the imagery in the culture. There's, there's a lot – if you were a kid growing up in a, in a uh, devoutly Catholic but also one, a family suffused with that kind of culture – you and you, and no one prepares you for, for understanding what these hallucinations are, why these things are happening to you. You could easily mistake it, as he I think he comes to, as these these messages from below or punishments from above, or he's or he's seeing things that are real. And 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 according to his family, Richard was you know did well in school until he stopped doing well for a variety of reasons, but. That he wasn't he wasn't stupid, although I don't know he doesn't seem he seems to me to be a, a, a bit a bit like kind of like a classic a classic guy who in another life might have just been a, a formed a metal band and, and done a bunch of drugs without hurting people, but he he doesn't he just seems a, a bit like that. But but um, but so I don't know if he, he's he wasn't seen as as dumb, but he, you know if from your age you're having co- uh, very very common intense uh, c- hallucinations with seizures. You're kind of in this crazy world that's produced by your 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 brain, and but it's coming in and out. So sometimes you're okay, and other times you're you're in and out, and that's going to create a kind of a a strict bifurcation between your sense of the world. There's going to be these, you know, what's what's around you and around everyone else, and then there's the monsters and the you know the angels and the demons and all the other stuff um, that is coming in. Yeah, I think you uh, I think you're absolutely right about the the intense catholicism in like the mexican community in texas and i i'm from texas and i'm half mexican and i've always sort of uh told people like it's it's funny there's a lot of goths there's a lot of like mexican metalhead dudes down in texas and i really my theory on it has always been it's because we're raised with the hardcore catholic imagery which is uh you know kind of scary and kind of jarring when you're young and then when you become a teenager and you become a total edgelord and want to uh freak people out you just turn it inside out and that's that's satanism you know yeah well i mean i think i think in a in a, in a normal in a normal life trajectory maybe richard ramirez forms a metal band uh you know uh, you know he was a huge acdc fan he's probably the only serial killer you'll find who actually liked that kind of thing. Most serial killers, you know, or, or, or other similar people like that, you know, uh, John Wayne Gacy loved listening to Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. and Richard Kuklinski, the hitman for, you know, 
the DeMeo crew like killed like two or three hundred people. He's like the scariest guy in American history. One of them used to feed loving people to rats. He loved Liberace. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, he was the son of Sam listening to Peter, Paul and Mary, that kind of stuff. Um, it's very rare to find these killers who, you know, who aren't necessarily the metalhead guys. And I think part of it is that that part of him where he's just like the metal metal guy and, 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 and drugs and being the bad boy and then eventually Satan and all this stuff. That's just that could have been a part of a normal reaction to where he was coming from. And it seems like this. I wondered why you had, had wanted to be on this episode. I, I didn't know, uh, Jake, I didn't know if you were uh, it, where you were from. I would have assumed if you were from the East Coast that you would have uh, and, and, and you were uh, Latin, that you would have been Puerto Rican just because that's the kids I grew up with. We don't see that many Mexicans in, in, in Massachusetts or in New York. I don't think as much as you do Puerto Ricans. But um, but in Texas, no. yeah, in, in Texas, it's different. And, and there's that whole there's the Day of the Dead thing. There's a very interesting um, kind of very uh, bloody and death-focused imagery that's this sort of fusion of Catholicism with the more ancient stuff, some of the, some of the Aztec stuff, maybe some of the, 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 some of the other uh, people's um, that is sort of mixed in there. And, and, um, and so, you know, but there's, but the thing is, is that when you look at Ramirez, that's going to be kind of almost window dressing for what is actually happening. But you think that it could have in a, given a normal life development and maybe more normal genes that he could have possibly just been a kind of a, a kind of a, a cool, uh, you know, uh, 1980s metal drugs, uh, uh, you know, guy. And, 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 you know, even like after he was convicted of all those murders and rapes and absolute terrorizing of California, he's, of course, he still he has his bad boy appeal to women. Once he fixes his teeth, his teeth are just totally busted up, but he fixed his teeth in jail. And suddenly he's, he's, he's kind of like, he's Tommy Lee, you know, suddenly he's, he's, he's this, this, this bad boy. But I, I think one, I think there's a number of moments in his childhood where you could sort of see in a diff, you know that other possible context emerging because he he has a real struggle uh, as everyone in the family has with his dad. This is a little bit similar to John Wayne Gacy. John Gacy had this horribly abusive dad who was just an this an absolute tyrant and monstrous figure, uh, almost as much as his son ended up being, and um, he he would just smash his wife in the face and beat the whole family. And Gacy idolized him. Uh, Ramirez doesn't idolize his dad, but the whole family struggled with his dad's uncontrollable temper. And he would have seen his dad, it's not John, the, Ramirez would have seen uh, his dad, you know, beating his older brother for, for his delinquency after he was caught uh, shoplifting or ro robbing or something with a metal pipe. And his dad just would like smash his head against the wall until he was bleeding. He had this uncontrollable rage. And... But Ramirez never idolized him. And I know one of the things that people point to in his case that also when they connect to the whole Satan thing is, you know, in, in a lot of the, in a lot of the culture, uh, you're going back to Milton, you know, they're depicting uh, God as this sort of managerial figure and Satan as this cool rebel figure, kind of like you can, you can blame that Milton. But the thing is, is that Paradise Lost, but the thing is, is that it's in our culture. And and a big and I don't know how much of a part of this is because he never speaks ill of his mother. But his dad is just sort of wailing on the family. His mother's just retreating to her room and doing the rosary and just praying and, and just I mean, how much could his mother have done? She couldn't necessarily stop her husband, who's like a bigger, more powerful guy, you know, or you know, from, from doing things. But but I think what he got is the idea that as an active male figure imposes his will, and then the mother's just this passive recipient, and that's what it means to be a Christian, to be this passive cowardly 
person who just goes off and prays and doesn't do anything for your family. I don't know if that had to do with anything, but I, I, I do wonder if that had to do part partly with it. But it seems to me that the main thing with Richard Ramirez, uh, other than the head injuries and the pollution and his genetics, his propensity for violence, the main thing is is that is his is that he comes to idolize his cousin who is a was an unbelievable war criminal. A lot of this stuff was covered up by the army, but we know even what we know is insane. And also his brother-in-law. So he has these figures who have this incredible influence on him in his um as he's developing sexually. And that to me along with the brain injuries, the hallucinations, the um the family propensity for violence, that I think is 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 where you look more than than the other stuff. More than the than the than the Satan or the metal or anything like that. But that there's an there's an aspect to this with these guys. I got into true crime like a lot of people in America. I got into it. I was watching some episodes of Criminal Minds, like in 2009 or something. And there was a guy, a character they were talking about. There was a character, the uh, the villain of the week, that was this sort of satan, uh, serial killer who said he had a, a um, uh, Satan was his his his, uh, his 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 personal friend and ally. And there was a guy who was just like that. They're basing that on named John Ray Weber. It was even worse than Ramirez. But um, but th- what they were saying is that a, 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 a um, he doesn't kill because he believes in Satan. He believes in Satan because he kills. So in some ways, it's a narrative they're telling to try to make sense of their insanity. And that may have been directly informed by his religious upbringing and by all by the strange stuff that, that the culture he came from. You cannot interpret your naturally these hallucinations you're having and these crazy violent impulses and the emerging violent sexuality that you have and all the shit your cousin did in the war. You can't explain that. Uh, based on what you know, by anything other than these, this, this, uh, this narrative of, you know, supernatural forces battling inside your head. So FBI records show that Romero was arrested three times in adult uh, in El Paso. The first arrests were for marijuana possession. The third for reckless driving. Uh, he was driving a car when he was picked up. Uh, on the charge, police found a toy cap gun, a ski mask, and a green wallet on the front seat next to him. Uh, the reckless driving charge was dismissed, but one of the two marijuana charges brought three years probation. Shortly after, he was placed on probation. He left El Paso. Uh, he eventually moves to Los Angeles. I'll have to check that. Go on. No, so the, the arrests were at 17, but I'm not sure when he moves. To I think you're right uh, about the fact that he just happened to be into Satan, which is really, like, confusing for the casual serial killer enthusiasts to uh, to just come upon him. Or the Actually, I mean, for normal people to have heard about this, it's a logical conclusion for them to go, oh, this guy is, um, you know, his Satan thing and his serial killer must all be wrapped up together as one big ball of wax. But uh, like you were saying, yeah, most serial killers don't have this aesthetic thing going on. So I guess, like, part of the reason I picked him, I, re- I remember when y'all asked me this a million years ago to do this podcast, uh, I did kind of just randomly pick him because he's Mexican and he's from Texas, and I just thought it'd be funny to... That's not a bad more. reason. That's but, not a bad reason, but no, okay, yeah, Simeon likes his, 
I think we had Yogi Palawala here because he's from Washington <laughs> to do the pet. pet yeah, pet that's the fun thing about serial killers is they're like mascots. You know, like every state kind of has one. And... <laughs> <laughs> like he a... could be the Raiders mascot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he could be. <laughs> uh, but but I think the thing that I really find most interesting about his story is that uh, ar- he's he's happening in like the ar- around the time of a moral panic in this country around things like Satanism and Dungeons and Dragons and nerd stuff that he's yep. into. And when they happened to catch him and he became, you know, a publicly known figure, I think you're right. It's kind of mere coincidence that he was all about the devil, but that is had to have been so like scary to people. Uh, it's it's very funny to crack something open and then it just just by complete happenstance have this you know this perfect image of a monster kind of uh, you know take over. And I think universe. it really is interesting that it was through his engagement with his religion, like he seems to have been as as a young teenager more religious than I would say people who just go on to be nominally religious are. So he actually engaged in the, he read the Bible, he went to uh, Bible school and all, the, all these things, and then he developed on from that to developing Satanism as well. So it's almost like it comes from his life and then he becomes the kind of perfect image of this kind of like moral panic. But he did actually genuinely engage in that stuff, which is, as, as, you, know, as you said, why like sort of like Mexican-American... Catholicism and like create like goths and things of that nature. Yeah. yeah, it's though the thing is though is it it makes it that much more likely that what's that's that that's how it's going to be framed in his mind because that's 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 what seems that's the only explanation that he can see and that has been provided for him for what's happening, and it's the only way that he can frame his own impulses and his own actions and the, and his own developing psychology in any way that makes sense. And the thing is, is that. If you were less into it, like you were just a casual, like, this is boring, you know, Catholic kid, you're not going to be anywhere near as likely to frame something like this happening, these epileptic hallucinations, this developing violent psychology around sex. Um, that is not, You're not going to be more likely to frame that with the Satan stuff, with the idea that you are a in some sort of cosmic war involving God and the devil and yourself. But to some degree, a lot of these guys, I think at the sense that Ramirez was as narcissistic in the way as some of these guys, he doesn't, the narrative, he is sort of like sees himself as this sort of in Satan's army, but it's, it's more just, I think, to make sense of the whole thing. He doesn't see, he doesn't seem like he's the best in Satan's army or he doesn't have this grandiosity, but it does, it does provide this explanation that makes his life make sense and make, him, him himself seem less invisible, less incidental. It doesn't matter if he has no relationships with anyone else in life. If he's invisible to the world, if he's completely off on his own, just doing drugs uh, on the like on the strip or whatever, because he's in in this grand, almost cinematic war inside his own head, where he is he's in his favorite heavy metal music video. He he's picked a side. He's doing this, even though this is just a way to I think explain to himself in a sense why he's doing all this stuff and doesn't actually have to do with the reason uh, for it at least the, the 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 motivation the core motivation and and the and impulse and the causes of them so he moves to Los Angeles and his Los Angeles is like 
street junkies, prostitutes, you know, dark alleyways, all this kind of stuff. And then he's he's planning on selling cannabis over there. So he he, he visits brother uh, Ruben and his wife. Both of them decided to invest in some firearms. Uh, he's doing a lot of cocaine. And then also at this time, he he develops an interest in PCP as well. And and while at this time, you know, because he's away from school, away from his his family, he's developing his sadistic fantasies, you know, into sex fantasies as well. And so he's really become the kind of person who's like outside of the 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 social unit and the institutions that kind were kind of kept his you know his all the explosive urges within him at bay. Well, I, I think I think one thing that's important to talk about is is that. Um, this case specifically, I think I mentioned before we started recording on this, that this really is a really ideal um, illustration of something we talked about in our third episode. That's kind of one of the things that inspired this podcast series, the book Sons of Cain by Peter Vronsky. This whole thing about how serial killing is something you see. It's kind of modeled in a lot of the behavior of man and it's our prehistoric past in certain different ways in the Middle Ages. But the thing is also is, is that the major thing with the with this with his theory, which he referred to the diabolism culture as a term, which means the devil in the culture, and he took it from an anthropologist, um, is that the is that when serial killing explodes in a society, and we talked about it exploding a little bit in Germany before the Nazis came to power um, in the 30s, we start with you know, and in the post-war era in the United States, the 60s and 70s and early uh, you know, and 80s and particularly the 80s, what, there were a number of reasons for that, you know. Uh, you know, major economic problems, diffusion and, and, and alienation, but a bit, the big and, ma- and massive uh, undealt with changes in 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 in, um, in, in technology and in, and in, and in the sort of civic structure and the the morality of the culture. But the primary thing that he pointed to was the undealt with effects of of war and how it diffuses from generation to generation. And in most cases, this is World War II. The, a lot of parents, a lot of serial killers, had parents who fought in World War II. Um, in that generation, obviously boomers. But the thing was, is parents of World War II. But with Richard Ramirez, the primary influence with him, and I think a guy who is the co-subject here is his cousin Mike, uh, who was about I think eight, ten years older, something like that, old, than him. But Mike uh, was a, fought in Vietnam, and um, and Richard did not develop a connection with his father. He got along with his brother. His brother wasn't really around. His brother was mainly a petty criminal. And um, Mike Ramirez was someone who his dad did not like having around his kids. His dad saw who he was, I think, uh, Richard's dad. But when Mike came back from Vietnam, Richard uh, started hanging out with him and was interested in, in, in uh, what he was in, in his time there. And Mike Ramirez, I think you see here the direct, a direct manifestation of what happened, but not passed on from a father, but from a cousin. Mike Ramirez was, uh, I think he was a, gold, a Green Beret, I think it was. I don't know if you saw that, Toby, but he was. Uh, he fought on the ground. He was in the jungle. He was really a, a major combatant. And and there aren't that many of these guys in our series who have fought in in, in, in wars. I mean, there have been some who have served, but they haven't really been in, in the theater. William Bond, one of the California freeway killers, was. He was a gunner. Mike Ramirez 
was an outright war criminal and serial killer in Vietnam. He's uh, the, the State Department has records of I think twenty nine kills. Those don't those are just enemy soldiers, but he killed a whole lot of Vietnamese women. He took pictures of himself raping and uh, and decapitating uh, them, and um, and he had records of this voluminously. He killed a lot of uh, and he and he told Richard later it was you know it's this godlike power over life and death, and it, and it makes your penis hard and all that stuff. And he was his his cousin. His cousin was just like Richard would become. But Richard wasn't necessarily like that. I think Richard is someone who I mean, he had characters who from the moment they were born, it seems this is who they were meant to be. And I think there are some characters where there's a single event in their childhood. A guy who's I think a little bit similar to Richard Ramirez, Carl Panzram, the early part of the 20th century was this hobo who tried to start World World War. He was a mainly a guy who traveled around robbing and killing people. And um but he was he was formed, became violent because of brain injury from a botched home operation because his family was poor, and it was the early 20th century. And I think with Richard Ramirez, this is someone who, from these head injuries and from the influence of his cousin um, and his brother-in-law, that he becomes this. But his cousin certainly was this. Um, his cousin um, did this thing. We 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 talked about this in our third episode that war, like it 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 unleashes your inner caveman, your inner like beast. A lot of times, particularly these kind of wars where everyone's just sort of out there in the in the theater and they're just kind of like just just told to just do the job. And in in, in World War Two, um, in, in the Pacific theater, this really happened a lot. Like a lot of people, you know, the Japanese did horrible things to our troops, but obviously, especially even more of the Chinese and, and Russian POWs. Unit 731, but the but in in uh, we did that too. A lot of people, a lot of um, World War II veterans brought home uh, like noses and and heads of like the Japanese. That they they really it, there's something got unleashed. It was very primitive. Uh, Richard Ramirez's cousin Mike had had um, would frequently decapitate Vietnamese women they'd captured after raping them and take pictures of the whole thing. He kept seven heads of Vietnamese women that he'd shrunk and like kind of like a shrunken head that you see in these sort of primitive ceremonies and he kept them in a um in in these little bag in these little knapsacks that he turned into pillows that he would use as pillows and um in 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 when they were in 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 the in the wartime theater and there are a lot of these serial killers you see uh like edmund kepper or jeffrey dahmer who keep the body parts in part to feel like they have a piece of that person with them all the time that's why dahmer ate some of them uh in part but the thing is is that he was carrying around eight uh, shrunken heads of women he raped and killed in uh, Vietnam. We don't know how many he did, but he took pictures of it. And we don't know if there was any more than pictures. We don't know if there was video. But his cousin, uh, Richard Ramirez's cousin, Mike, uh, probably killed hundreds of people in Vietnam. And just and and him and some other members of his unit were I think were carrying on a a wartime terror uh, campaign. As, you know, I think because they were just sort of unleashed to do that. They just, you know, no rules. And, and in some ways you could say the Viet Cong were doing that and the South Vietnamese Army and everyone was kind of doing that. It was it was what was happening. But Richard Ramirez starts hanging out with him as he's like a preteen and is listening to those stories and just eating them up. And he's not disturbed by them. He's fascinated. And then when his cousin starts telling him about how having that power over women and, you know, over life and death, how it makes your dick hard and all this stuff. Richard's starting to find that it makes his dick hard too, just hearing about it. And he shows him these pictures. And what ends up happening is, is he's developing into his early teen years 
he re- he discovers that like his cousin, um, he 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 is aroused at the at um, violent spectacle and particularly at displays of fear. And when you are aroused at displays of fear, like we saw with our first killer, uh, Harvey Glattman, our first episode, that's a sign of some form of what they call sexual sadism, where you're aroused not so much by the infliction of pain as much as by witnessing fear and suffering and someone being under your total control. Um, and and the, and there's nothing, as one killer we covered, Mike DeBartolabans, there's nothing uh, that, you know, that shows your control more than making someone suffer. And he learned that he got off on that from his cousin. If he hadn't met his cousin, who knows? Maybe, as I said, maybe he becomes a, a just a metalhead and hangs out on Sunset Strip just doing drugs and doesn't kill anybody. But um, or maybe he starts a band. Uh, but the thing was is that he uh, he did something. There was this convergence of all these factors, his, his damaged brain, his violence and his genetics, and his fucked up cousin. And then on top of that, he spent some time living with his sister, his sister Ruth, who's, I think, uh, very religious herself, and she, he was very close with. That's the thing about Ramirez. He's close with his mother and his sisters. He doesn't hate everybody. Um, he's just not, but he, he at least has some level of affection for them. And I don't think he's like a complete, like, cold reptile to begin with. I think he's a broken Frankenstein's monster type figure. I think he's a, he's a monster created by the, in a lab. And the thing is, is that, but unfortunately, at the age of 12, he's been hanging around with his sister a, a, a lot and her husband, and her husband's a peeping Tom. So just as, as, as Richard is starting to, uh, you know, develop a sexual identity, his uh, war criminal cousin and his peeping Tom brother-in-law are influencing him. His peeping Tom brother-in-law takes him along on missions, essentially. Kind of like he feels like he's in Vietnam, but he's, he's spying on women in their house. He's a peeping Tom. And within, like, I think a couple years, he's already invading the, you know, he he um, he, he breaks into in a hotel room that a, that a wife and her husband were in. The husband went off to get food, and he breaks into the hotel room and assaults the woman. He's got a knife. He's trying to rape her. The husband comes back and beats the shit out of him, but they don't prosecute. They just leave the state. And um, so he was already starting to act out as a young teenager, directly in imitation of his brother-in-law and his cousin. So I think he's formed almost first and foremost by his genes and then by the head injuries. And then you, and, and then the, the, these, these people in his first family who are just completely menaces. And then he, then he discovers at this very impressionable age that, he, that he's into that. He's not repelled. He's not, he, do, he doesn't say that's weird. That's kind of fucked up. He, he's not into any girls at his school. He's into the idea of being a war criminal, of being, of invading people's homes and, uh, ter- and terrorizing women with a knife. Uh, and, by that, and by the time I think he's a young teenager, that's who he is as a result of his influences and, and his genetics. Well, I just wanted to touch on something you were, you were talking about earlier, which is that uh, uh, his, his cousin or brother, is it cousin, Mike? The, the Mike is his cousin, yeah. Ruben's his brother. Yeah, so uh, Mike is, if anything, like as horrible as Richard Ramirez, right? But yep. what's funny about this story and what's kind of interesting about it uh, outside of the individual characters themselves to me is that uh, we're not culturally obsessed with Mike, even though he was functionally the same level of killer as Richard Ramirez. Right. And I think what's happening there has to do with the fact that the violence at, at, when, at war is sanctioned. Right. It's. Uh, it's allowed and it's almost considered necessary and we have sort of a dissociation with it like as a society so the story of Richard Ramirez 
appearing in L.A. is very much a horror story because it's it's our own society's chickens come home to roost, you know? Exactly, yep. We had the hubris to believe that you could send people to do these horrific things on the other end of the globe and there would be no after effects of that, but it's it's uh, it's just war come home, you know, which is how so many evil things uh, manifest themselves. Richard brought the war home. I think literally true. And, and, and the other thing that happens is, is that I think this is the, the coup de grace of this is that when Richard's at his cousin's house, Richard's cousin uh, had, like many Vietnam veterans, a very troubled marriage. And when he came back home, he was not, I would say he was not the same, but actually he was probably like this before he went to war. But the thing was, is he, he when he came home, he wasn't really, in, he, like a lot of Vietnam veterans, he, he, he didn't really have any way to integrate back into society. A lot of people become bikers, you know, um, you know, whether you join the Hells Angels, if you're a white guy or the Vandals, I think, you know, whatever the Mexican version. But the thing was, is that um, his wife Banditos. was constant. Uh, Banditos. Oh, OK, his, his, his wife was constantly on mic to, 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 to work. But he, he was more interested in just showing off his his pictures of, of war stuff. He didn't have any other way of processing it. And he was really into what he was doing over there. And, and he had his, his cousin who was interested in it. He was constantly with hanging out with his cousin. And, and anyway, one day. His wife just gives him the business and says, you know, just screaming at him and telling him, if you don't do this and this and this and this and this, and, uh, and, and, and Mike says, you know, shut the fuck up or I'll kill you. And she says, no, you won't. He takes out a gun and shoots her right in the face, right in front of Richard, kills her right there. And, uh, and, and told Richard, that's what you do to a bitch. And what's interesting is what you just said. He was prosecuted. He was like... They, 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 he was like in jail for like a matter of months. The army didn't want the bad press. He was declared, well, he's just been driven insane by Vietnam. It's another case of Vietnam, another Vietnam casualty. And I think what it was the Vietnam was they didn't care. You know, there was just this weird, this weird um, three dimensional chess game they were playing with the domino theory and all this stuff. They weren't paying attention to how it was going to affect um, the the uh, the social dynamics on the ground and particularly with uh, uh, our GIs they, they they didn't they weren't paying attention to that if they had been they would have stopped heroin from flooding the you know the bases but it was being paid for to some degree by our intelligence agencies and the thing was is that to prop up uh, flooding regimes who were uh, drug financed in large part they, they weren't paying attention to how this would affect that wasn't as beside the point and anything is defensible when you're dealing with um, an enemy like this, uh, you know, which which was the USSR, effectively, because uh, they saw um, Vietnam as a, as a you know as a, as a subsidiary of that. And you know, I've seen people talk about who were involved in getting essentially getting weapons to Al Qaeda, you know, to, to fight the USSR. And they're like, well, I'm not going to apologize for that. The USSR is over. We won. It's like that's the they have a long game approach. But obviously, Vietnam was a complete failure, and any by any uh, way of looking at it, and. And uh, Mike Ramirez, I think, was probably, you know, uh, a psycho killer beforehand. I mean, people don't become this way in war. They don't become serial killers. I mean, they may kill a lot of people, but they don't get that pathology of wanting to rape and decapitate and take pictures of women and it makes them aroused. But absolutely, the, th this gets unleashed by our government and they cover it up. So they don't want they, Mike, Mike Ramirez. One of the reasons we don't talk about this is because it was in Vietnam. But they don't, it, it, and it doesn't have the salacious element with like with, with Satan and all that stuff, but also because the government were fine with letting him off with a, you know, he was just in jail for like a matter of months or, or a couple of years 
because he they just said, oh, he's crazy. He went crazy in Vietnam. No more questions to ask. No more bad coverage. We don't need more bad coverage of the uh, of this disastrous war in the press. We don't need more people saying the U.S. government is turning your boys into in, in, into into baby killers and ra- and and rapists and and killing Vietnamese women. A terrible press for the United States. And and uh, and and terrible, just you know, just sort of egg on the face over this stuff. So we can just send him to you know, to uh, to jail and uh, for a couple months, and then that'll be it. And and uh, because he, they just said he's crazy, he went crazy in Vietnam. That's what happens. And uh, but what ended up happening was Richard saw the whole thing, and he was shocked by it in the sense he didn't expect it would happen, but he wasn't like traumatized by it. He just thought it was it was kind of interesting. He didn't have that. He like a lot of people like this psychologically psychopaths or, you know, whatever variety of that you have. They're not disturbed by violence like people are. They're not going to have like a make. They won't feel sick. They'll be fascinated by it, or they'll just or they'll have a response to it. It's like okay, it's like sort of like you're seeing a dead animal or something like that. You're you're it, they have it has no effect on them. But um, I also think that seeing this happen. He was, if anything, well, this is this is just this is just a man asserting his will, you know. He's, 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 you know, and it was kind of interesting to him. It was kind of, it was kind of, uh, who knows? He might have even found it arousing. I don't know, but th- that must have had a, a profound effect on him. And also on top of that, after uh, Mike Ramirez was arrested, Richard and his father Julian went to uh, his house to get his stuff, and Richard stumbled on his whole collection. <laughs> of torture porn, his whole collection of these horrible photos that he'd taken of women that he raped, decapitated and, and, you know, and everything else that he, after they were tied to a tree, he had this huge collection of photos he'd taken of himself, raping these terrified women, uh, torturing them, uh, cutting off their heads, posing with the dead bodies, posing with the heads. And he had all this collection of, of, uh, of, of the stuff he was jacking off to. And uh, Richard Ramirez found that and kept it. His dad never found out about that. But that's another thing that, that, that uh, contributes to this. But you're right. He's not, he will not know about this because it's another thing the government would like us to not focus on. We're never going to deal with Vietnam. That Ken Burns documentary was like, you know, it's just we have all the stuff because we never dealt with it. We never dealt with all the, the enmities that were the all the ruined lives, all the lies, all the pain, all the, the ways people treated each other horribly and Vietnam and here back at home over it. And we're never dealing with it. And and, and eventually people will just die. But the, that stuff, it stays in the culture. It's, it can stay there forever. It can and it can manifest ten generations down the line in someone else that's affected by that spirit that's in there because it gets passed on genetically. I think the thing you touched on with Mike is that on this podcast we we've sort of talked about a theory of serial killing actually being of benefit to people in prehistory. When you go to Peter Voronsky's idea that it was the ability to kill at that level that allowed human beings to defeat other uh, forms of human beings, uh, Homo sapiens to become like the masters and to to defeat other kinds of humans. Uh, you know, it's a theory that is an interesting theory. It's, it's not necessarily something accepted, and it's 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 a theory in, in a pool of other theories. But it it is interesting because. As Jake alluded to, like serial killing within a war 
wartime, the ability to do it. It's not something that everyone can do. People like Mike not only flourish, but their skills are really valued. Their their psychological machinery is really valued in a wartime. You know, the the the, the ability to kill people, uh, the ability to torture people. You know, that this that this kind of rage is allowed and sanctioned and institutionally can be sanctioned and protected and, and you know you can kill people afterwards and the army will protect you because of it but when you get to someone like Richard Ramirez who's doing this in you know a normal functioning society not doing it in prehistory where it might be valuable in, in wartime or doing it in the kind of synthesized modern war it becomes a horror story No, it's fine. So, yeah, so now uh, Richard is in Los Angeles, and just picture this, like, he's he's almost like Travis Travis Bickle, like, he's, you know, he's got his baseball cap on, driving down Skid Row, seeing prostitutes, drug dealers, listening to heavy metal a lot, and it's now the 27th of June, 1984, you know, he's ready to commit his um, first real acts of um, of violence. So, uh, one night at 10.30pm, he, he drove to see his drug dealer named Roberto and purchased two grams of cocaine. Over the course of the next few hours, Robert followed a pattern of shooting the drug and driving along the road, he was searching for the right kind of house. When he found one, he parked on the Chapman Street and slipped into his gardening gloves. No fingerprints, just like everything else. They were as dark as the night. His target was a two-story apartment building. He walked from the door to door, peering through any window in order to assess the contents inside. The one he finally chose was apartment number two. The apartment belonged to Ginny Vincal. Vincal was a 79-year-old and previously lived in New York, but had moved a few years earlier following a disagreement with one of her sons. Instead, um, she lived in Los Angeles' apartment block, while another of her sons named Jack lived in the apartment above. Jack had thought the warmer climate would do wonders for his ailing mother and that he'd be able to keep a close eye on her. Uh, Jenny was often unwell. Uh, Richard pried open the screen inside the open window. He snuck inside. Some people have said that he was thinking about Satan when he did this. Uh, Richard didn't know what was inside. He, so he moved inside. Once he, he was inside, it became clear that he, he had made a poor choice. Jenny Vincow was not a rich woman. There was nothing there. That was worth much prowling around the room. Richard only stopped to stare at the sleeping. When breaking into houses, Richard carried a six-inch hunting knife for the protection for his protection. As he watched the woman, uh, his rage grew. He unsheathed the, the blade, creeping over to the unconscious figure. Richard raised the knife above her chest and and then put it deep into the, her flesh. Ginny woke up with a scream, but it was not enough to deter him. The pain spreading through, she felt a hand slap across her mouth and 
cutting out the sound. Then, raising her chin up, Richard placed the edge of the knife along the old skin of her, her neck and slipped from ear to ear. The cut was so deep it nearly took the head off. As Ginny rolled around, choking and gagging on her over, on over blood, Richard watched. When the movements grew less violent, he leaned down and stabbed her three more times in the chest. It's interesting that he also he's doing this uh, on cocaine. I mean, of course, we've seen in, in a lot of worse uh, time situations. And I think what you how you understand Richard Ramirez crimes. Um, I'm coming through, right? Yeah. Uh, OK, good. Uh, why, I think when you I think the, 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 the correct way to understand Richard Ramirez's crimes in the sense is he's, he's carrying on a war against the citizens of Los Angeles and eventually San Francisco. But the thing is, is if you look at a lot of like, you know, like the, the guys who work for the cartels, um, you know, you see, uh, you see, you've seen this in wars throughout. You know, the Nazis were on all manner of stuff, cocaine particularly, but also you sometimes you see methamphetamines, sometimes you see PCP and these other things. But um, the use of these drugs to get people who are whose job it was to to kill or ex, you know, or um, torture or whatever people in, for gangs or in war, uh, often you would use cocaine or other drugs like that to bring that on. Often you to or to condition them to do it, and um, and so in a sense he's kind of like like the commander commanding himself. Like he's he's dosed himself in order to do the job. But I, I mean, I think he ha he he would have anyway. But it, but it that it's it's just it's interesting to me that he's doing this uh, on he's doing this on a lot of cocaine. It reminds me of the guys working for the cartels or 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 um, or some of the death squads in 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 uh, various wars. Yeah, so he's he's feeling super powerful in this situation. He after he kills her, he actually stays in the apartment for an hour, um, just to entertain himself. You know, he he stated that uh, Satan had taken over him and that he was enjoying, you know, feeling validation from Satan for the killing that he had committed. And he also felt that he got away because Satan was protecting him. So it was then 10 hours later when the body was found by Jack, Jenny's son. I think also when you look at his, his uh, timeline of crimes here, I think that this has been only confirmed recently, but he uh, they, they found his DNA at the crime scene of a little girl he killed in a way kind of like BTK. He, he uh, stabbed and raped and, 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 and a little girl and, and then hanged her. And they found it, but they didn't have any idea who that. But they, they, but in the in the era that came where they were able to test based on DNA, they were able to connect that to Ramirez. Ramirez did kill a few kids. I don't think that was a primary thing. I don't know if he was just doing that as to experiment with what he was interested in. It seems to me that the whole thing is is that he's not getting validation from anything. He's a, he's completely off on his own. He's living in, entirely inside this this world inside his head. But he gets this sense of of being uh, commanded by Satan or validated by Satan. And so he's no longer alone, no longer a total irrelevancy to the world. He is, he is part of this other figure's grand story. And on top of that, makes sense of and justifies these impulses that have been built up in him from his, his, uh, his family influences and whatever else uh, caused him to become uh, a sexually sadistic thrill killer. Yeah, so... He really enjoyed that that killing. 
but he he was he was also a little bit paranoid about getting caught. But it for him, I think it's been described as almost like a sec, second addiction. I mean, this is the probably the first serial killer that we've dealt with who's also like an addict as well. Like who we've had a couple who were who used drugs, but yeah, this is the first I think where it's a major part. He's like highly dependent on substances, and and he started to see his violent sexual fantasies and the the validation and um, the attempt to bring to fruition these violent sexual fantasies as another wholly different kind of 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 addiction. So. On the 17th of March, 1985, uh, dressed in all black, which was still a car. Yeah, and Richard, it's funny that he just, he waited until the owner of the car had finished filling the gas tank to, to quickly walk into it and steal it. But he's driving along the road and he notices Maria Hernandez, who was a petite, attractive brunette with large round eyes and clear olive skin. He spotted her on the freeway as he was driving her, as she was driving her gold Canaro home for dinner with her boyfriend. Uh, As she she left the freeway and made her way into the suburbs, uh, he spotted her. He followed her three blocks before she showed and took a right into a new condominium community on Village Lane. He trailed her into the complex and watched her take a left and right and pull into the last garage at the back of the condo she shared with the roommate. And Maria pulled into the garage. Richard parked his car, got out of the car and walked straight towards her. His steps and movements were really quick and low and he was looking at the ground. At the moment, he bent down to enter the garage, walked straight towards Maria while her back was still to him as he bent his ACDC hat, fell off. Maria had to open two locks to get into her house. She opened one, heard a noise behind her, perhaps the falling hat and turned. He was 20 feet away, walking towards her, pointing the gun with two hands right between her eyes. She could actually see down the barrel. No, God, please don't. No, she screamed, automatically raising her hand. He, he kept coming. When the gun was two feet from her face, the, the garage door finished closing and the light automatically went out, putting them in sudden darkness. At that instant, he fired, but Maria had raised her right hand in defense and the bullet was miraculously def- deflected by the keys. He kept coming. When the gun was two feet from her face, the garage door finished closing and the light automatically went out, pulling them... Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm she falls um, she, because of, the, of the, the hit of the bullet, but it, the bullet had hit her key and she dropped. But she was worried that... Uh, uh, Dali was was upstairs, not knowing what to do. She ran out of the garage and searched around for help. Uh, still in shock, she still confused. She didn't know what to do. So she she actually gets up and um, 
Richard is, and as he's he's trying to leave, um, just at descending the steps, he was shocked to see the figure of Maria seemingly risen from the dead. Uh, the girl was stat standing in the driveway, fighting and pleading, ducking. She moved behind an orange car and tried to remain out of sight, pointing the gun at Maria. So he points the gun at her, but he's looking behind him, and then he starts walking, and he gets into the car and he drives off. He, she survived because the bullet, bullet ricocheted off a set of keys. Um, and I think Ramirez, when someone survived him, when he would shoot them, he sort of thought, well, I guess, you know, uh, you know, some angel or God is protecting her. He thought, you know, and, you know, I guess she, she, she got, um, you know, so I, I, this is time to execute a tactical retreat. I think he thought he really did, uh, come to believe he was involved in this cosmic war and, and that if, and if they, and if the gun, the bolt was deflected or if they somehow survived, then that was what, you know, they had some special protection or they had some special favor or they were meant to survive. And, uh, and even if it's not a cause of these murders, uh, really at root, um, the this whole this whole narrative that's built up in his head about it is very real to him. And 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 uh, I think he thought that she must have have been uh, saved by divine uh, favor or power because the bullet uh, ricocheted off her keys. And um, and you know there are a lot of people who would uh, give that some credence. Um, in, in different situations, uh, you know, but the thing was, is I think with him is that's the only thing that's real. The only thing that's real is this, this, this straight, this sort of, you know, heavy metal music video that's built up in his head about this whole thing. But, it, but with really very real supernatural war going on where he's part of that war and they're part of that war and she survived. So she must be being protected by, um, uh, by, uh, divine powers as well. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be, you know? Uh, one th <laughs> something about this fucking story that's like really glaring to me. It's so funny. It's just like between the gold Camaro and the ACDC hat and everything, <laughs> it's just so fucking 80s, you know? He's it's funny because he's he's you know scary, so he gets to be portrayed the way he wanted to be as the night stalker, but he's serial killers are so often these like weird like napoleon dynamite nerd characters you know he's got <laughs> fucking terrible yep. rotting teeth and a goofy acdc hat and he's just like tooling around listening to 80s metal while he's doing all this shit <laughs> and i guess beautiful hair though apparently his hair was great you have like you don't have yeah. to hand it to him but uh, <laughs> no he, yeah he had he, he had he had he had great great uh, mexican hair the, the, one thing is also it's worth noting is is that, you know the, the the night I mean he was really eating up the whole Night Stalker thing. He thought in his mind he'd built up the idea that the ACD song Night Prowler was about him, even though the Night Stalker was a nickname. ACD had an early ACDC had a song called Night Prowler, and I think he was inspired by it. Like he was probably listening to it going into the, the you know, and yeah a lot of a lot of serial killers. We saw this with the uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK guy, are kind of these dweebs, you know. Uh, but the thing about it is is that before they had any idea, the media went through a lot of nicknames. They went through a lot of nicknames before they got the Night Stalker nickname, uh, which is the greatest nickname, I think, in serial killer history. Uh, but um, they, at one point, it was he was the walk-in killer, and 
Easily the worst nickname in show color history. Hilariously bad. The screen door intruder. That's for, fucking terrible. For several months, I think in a year in the press, they said the screen door intruder strikes again. <laughs> so he was because he was going into people's screen doors. He was the walk-in killer for a while. The screen door intruder. He must have read that in the paper and thought, "What the fuck is this?" You know, the screen door intruder. I wonder if he stopped intruding from screen doors at that point and was just like, you know, busting through doors because regular doors. Because he because the screen door intruder is. I don't even know what in what context that wouldn't be fucking awful. That's the worst nickname ever. And the Night Stalker is exactly what he was looking for. It puts him inside, literally inside an ACDC song. And yes, it is. It's a very 80s story. And um, and the thing is, is that is that with his sort of rock star appeal, you know, that he was in court, just being the bad boy, there is an aspect to where a lot of these kind of criminals, what they're doing, in their, they're, as horrible as what they're doing is, in some ways, there's a little bit like a horrible version of little kid stuff. A little horrible version of... A little kid leaving a flame, you know, a, a flaming pile of dog poo on someone's porch. There's a, there's an aspect to with this with BTK's crimes with Peter Curtin, with uh, with Ramirez that they have an they, they 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 this their theatrical side is a very kind of like a little kid, you know, st- sticking their tongue out at, at at society, but doing it because of their pathology, doing it in in in, in the through these horrible murders and. And rapes and stuff, but to them it's like it's just like you're, you know, leaving the flaming do- pile of dog poop. You're you're putting you're putting the pentagram on the ro- on the wall. It, you may as well you know be be putting you know, you know rock and roll you know the whole thing. But uh, the other aspect of it is is that California also is reminded a lot of people of the Manson stuff because you know they're putting death to pigs and everything like that, and that was the biggest case up to that point. And there were other two other cases I think worth mentioning in comparison in California. The Zodiac, of course, which we have referenced in several of our episodes, but we haven't done an episode on it, probably because we don't know who he is. But, you know, he left, he had the, his, his codes the, uh, the, that he left that have still not been cracked uh, to tell the people the identity. And, of course, the Golden State Killer was recently caught, Joseph James D'Angelo. And the similarity there, beside it being California, beside this guy being a prolific rapist, is that... Joseph D'Angelo was a home invader, as was Ramirez. That's really uncommon with serial killers. There aren't that many of those. Uh, two guys who were uh, ex-Marines uh, duo, Leonard Lake and Charles Zing, who were in California and had a torture cabin in the woods. And they were like the worst of the worst. But they did, they, they did that a couple times. But in general, that's not you don't do that very often. Um, it's very rare for serial killers to burst the best of people's houses. Normally, they take people to some other location. Or something like that. But to burst into someone's house, that's like you're declaring war on the whole society. No one's safe. And then when you're killing old people, and especially he, some of the old people he kills are Asian. Some of them are Hispanic. You know, particularly cultures that, you know, value the, the, the older members of the, uh, of the family. This is like a direct war. And he's like his cousin Mike. He's carrying out, he's waging a, 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 a um, wartime terror campaign. And But in his mind, it's all part of this, you know, this heavy metal music video, he's he's the night prowler or the night stalker, as the media calls him. But that's what he's. I mean, the, the, when you're invading homes, like the Golden State Killer, uh, Richard Ramirez doing that, that makes no one is safe. And then when you aren't just targeting young women or whatever, you're targeting every gender, every age. 
everything and everyone is 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 and then and then you have these satanic symbols on the wall particularly in california with the history of manson and all that stuff and people thinking that's crazy manson was a pimp and everything that happened was due to manson trying to keep control of his of his essentially his of his hookers that was the whole thing manson was a depression era th- criminal manson was a character on justified essentially there's a reason why the guy who played dewey crow on justified also played manson in once upon a time on hollywood and mindhunter uh that's kind of who manson was but Richard Ramirez is just a kind of a thrill-killing, you know, sexually sadistic. Uh, he, he's, you know, imitating his cousin. He's, he's, he's essentially just a thug, but he has got this narrative. Um, and people, everyone thinks, oh, this guy's invading the uh, everything. He's, 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 he's um, destroying family after family and, and, and he's leaving these satanic symbols. They didn't know what to make of it. It's why he's so scary. I think part of it's the satanic stuff to, to California, but it's mostly the home invasion. That's the key point with Richard Ramirez, other than the rapes and murders, is the home invasion makes everyone at risk. It's not like you can't go somewhere. Like, you, oh, don't go over there. It's like if the shark, don't swim over there in the shark. No, the shark goes into your house. Again, like a live sketch. Everyone's at risk. So yeah, he broke into the house of a of an older woman who lived with her sister, who was like uh, needed special care and supports, and he and he killed he killed the the lady and just about left her sister alive. So murders like this, uh, and people have said it like he as you alluded, like people have said it like he wasn't just killing people who went out on the streets or prostitutes or hitchhikers you know he he, um he was entering people's homes and killing them which is just a completely different kind of thing and people you know they had no rules of thumb about how to protect themselves so like the city kind of goes into like uh terror even though uh it's a bit like sound of sam you know uh when a few people are being uh, being killed it turns a whole city uh, scared so there's there's even stories when when the, the story was more publicly known there was an older man who was uh, so there was an older man who was walking down the street with his wife and then a, a younger guy was walking behind him and uh, so it's really actually just walked into him and the guy was so scared, flung his arm at the younger guy and, and and then told him, what are you trying to do? Don't you know this is California and the Night Stalker is around? And the younger guy stops jogging. And you just, just that just gives you a sense of the, the, the amount of fear that the, the, the method and the process that he was doing to, to have these killings had on the on the population at, at that time and as you uh said as well like that yeah the media did see this uh, as a real co- co- uh, commodity they went through a number of uh d- different names but uh, they eventually it was a los angeles herald examiner that eventually got the night stalker but and there was a lot of criticism uh, by other journalists and by the police about the romanticization of you know the, the, this 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 uh, night stalker and the city really goes into almost a mass alert. People are buying guns and firearms, uh, air pistols, high-powered semi-automatics. Uh, they're calling the police about 
suspicious things. And at the same time, the police are trying to build up a, you know, an idea of the killer. So it was after the Ahmed Ahmed Zia slaying, the 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 the, the sheriff held, um, you know, newspaper articles. Uh, the the Zia murder rape confirmed to the police, you know, that there was a serial killer. Too many similarities um, with the Zia crime to other murders in the area. Since March 17th, 1985, there have been at least 10 similar rapes and murders in valley homes outside the city. Um, consequently, there was, um, you know, there was at least now some acknowledgement. So the police went to the media. Uh, they, they announced that we have a serial killer in Los Angeles County. Um, and they provide. They try to provide general information to uh, the people about uh, the serial killer. At least the general information that they had at this time, actually, which is a little bit different from the other killers that we've profiled. There was some people surviving. Maria Hernandez uh, is is one example. Um, yeah, at, yeah, at this he, time, and, he, and, and he's obviously a mobile guy. He 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 he, he uh, drives uh, throughout LA and. Uh, and then eventually up to San Francisco, but he's um, he, he, he there isn't really I think any particular neighborhood that he targets, um, and it's just pretty much everyone. Uh, in the Netflix documentary, uh, they were focusing a lot on Gil Carrillo and uh, Frank Salerno, the, the cops who were trying to catch him. Frank Salerno was also involved in uh, catching the Hillside Stranglers the de- decade previous, but. Um, but uh, they they targeted someone like a block and a half away, or he dar- he he targeted someone a block and a half away, or something from where uh, Gil Carrillo lived. You can imagine people who are uh, whether someone in their area being targeted could could wonder if like th- there's any uh, method to the madness in terms of how he's targeting people. But what it, what I've heard is is that he you know when he was a kid he would hide from his. Well, one thing is, one thing is, is that uh, he would hide from his dad when he was, you know, his dad was being violent uh, in, in cemeteries. And uh, although one time his dad tied him up to a cross over, left overnight in the cemetery to punish him. I can't imagine that had anything to do, any effect. But, but, uh, but he would, he, he got used to, to, to hanging out in trees and looking through people's windows, probably imitating his brother-in-law. And so I think what he did when he was picking victims, traveling around all these places, he was he was he would like case them for, but would and would just be staying outside and staring in, and then figuring out if that was the place he was going to target, and 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 seeing the behavior of the people within and just like waiting around outside for a very long time, kind of like how BTK would wait in people's uh, closets for like eight hours, not even moving. You know, they, they, these type of guys they have that kind of patience, and um, and I'm guessing that's how he decided who he was going to kill. But I don't know if there was a beyond that a method or anything like that, because you know he's obviously out of his mind on, on in, in these sort of uh, delusions and with this this uh, deviant violent fantasy and and with the drugs and I think he also took LSD at a very very young age and, and you know that could be a big part of it. But PCP is, is even in some and sometimes can be even worse. Uh, my dad had a friend uh, 
in the 70s who jumped out of a window on PCP and is in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So the, I don't know if there's any any real, like, how he decides to pick any of these things. I don't know how he decided to go to San Francisco, but he picks these these victims. Maybe it's just because that they were easy targets. Maybe it's just, like, an animal hunting in the wild. You know, you see, like, the wounded... Uh, a deer and and you and you take that one out because you can you can you can target them. I think part of like the thing that makes this method so confusing, or the, I guess the key to understanding it, the the skeleton key here, I think is Los Angeles, right? Because uh, he like it, it seems erratic compared to other serial killers that operate in other terrain. But the thing about Los Angeles is that you can zip around on the highway. And get from one end of town to another pretty easily. So I think that's why he's popping up at all these random places. And he also was hiding for a while. I don't know the exact dates on this, but um, he lived at this thing called the Cecil Hotel in Skid Row, which is oh, yeah. a real shithole, like a historic shithole. It's the one that, um, like, 10 years ago, uh, th this woman disappeared from her hotel room and, and ended up in the uh the water tank on the roof and there's there's kind of this yep. like you know internet wormhole of conspiracy theories about it being some sort of odd ghost story or something like that um and stuff like that you know like, no one really knows what happened there but like stuff like that happens there because it's fucking skid row and no one is keeping an eye on anything and you can you know it, it's one of those hotels that isn't really a hotel like uh people there are people that are out of prison and sort of living in it and doing heroin and stuff and uh you know it's it's like a place if you scrape together enough money you can get off the street and live there case in point you can have Richard Ramirez, the fucking Night Stalker, living in one of your rooms without anyone noticing that he's coming home just, like, covered in blood and shit. He would walk through the, just the lobby nude. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. just covered in blood. No, no, no one would even notice. And it's not just that, like, you mentioned that girl who's found in the water tower. I, I saw the documentary about her. We don't know. I think it's possible that she, that she had some sort of psychotic break or some lapse with her medication. She had a mood, she had some serious mood problems. Beyond this, also, there's another guy who we might even do an episode on later on. I don't know. But a guy around the same time, I think a few years later, stayed at the Cecil Hotel, who was a serial killer who was became a, from Austria, who became a celebrity right. because he wrote a, a novel, uh, I think, called Purgatory. And I'm trying to remember his name, but he was this guy who, was a, who killed a bunch of women in Austria, managed to charm the Austrian press. And anyway, he, he lived at the Cecil Hotel. Uh, Jack Unterweger, that's his name. Jack right. Unterweger, he, he lived at the Cecil Hotel in like the late 80s, early 90s. He had gotten out of jail. He was like in jail for 15 years. And he had like, you know, raped to murder a woman. He's very similar to Rodney Alcala and Ted Bundy. And, and, he, and, he, and he would use metal pipes on women. He was, he was horrible. But the thing was is he had talent as a writer and he wrote this book called purgatory about basically kind of a little bit like like uh, abbott that writer who wrote you know in the belly of the beast um but he, he wrote this book called purgatory and got out of jail due to the lobbying of the austrian uh literati and the art and, and and the media and became a media panelist anyway he moves to los angeles and, ki and like kills like a dozen women and um it, mostly hookers um and whoever else he could pick up in L.A. But he was living at the Cecil Hotel in the late 80s and early 90s, around the time Ramirez was, a little bit later, I guess. There is something snake bit about that place, but I think it is, you said, it's more just that where it is. Skid Row, to this day, remains kind of like certain other places, the, 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 the center of sort of prostitution and drugs in, in British Columbia. 
there's a, a timeline as we're going through the year. So he move, moves on from uh, Marina Hernandez to March the 27th, 1985, Vincent and Maxine. So Zazra, May 14th, 1985, Bill and Lillian Lillian survived. This is Monterey Park. Then to Monrovia, May 29th, 1985, Mabel, May Bell and Florence Nessie. May 30th, 1985, Carol, Kyle and her 11-year-old son, uh, both of them survived. July the 5th, 1985, Whitney Bennett and Saria Madra, who also survives. And uh, July 20th, 1985, Leela and Maxon. Um, and then you've got August the 6th, 1985, Chris and Virginia. So he's, he's throughout the year. He's, he's essentially perpetrating on Los Angeles an unprecedented reign of terror. But as Jake says, he's moving through, through his use of the, of the motorway system through many different communities. Um, and it almost seems like someone is coming at random just um, reaping a, a kind of uh, yeah, havoc on, on all of Los Angeles anywhere and everywhere. Uh, we get to August, and it's 1985, and uh, one that I think needs to be catalogued here is the Chris and Virginia Peterson killing. So at 2 a.m., I saw a pulled off the freeway, cruised the North Ridge. The night was clear, thousands of stars filled the sky. He found his way to Arc Street shut off the lights and engine and coasted to a silent stop. His eyes moved from house to house, window to hill window, was home. He was strapping 6'1", 38 years old. His wife was 27 years old, blonde, blue-eyed. Uh, Chris worked as a warehouse manager for the past 11 years. Virginia was a U.S. postal clerk. Chris had gone to sleep after his wife, who had retired uh, to bed at 9.30. He'd left the living room light on because their daughter was afraid of the dark. Before he entered the room, he cocked the gun. Virginia was a light sleeper. The cold metallic click woke her. He said, who the hell are you? Uh, what do you want? Get out. Richard tells her to shut up, calls her a bitch. Uh, she realized that he had shot Chris. Uh, Virginia turned towards Chris. He saw the bullet wound in, the, uh, in his wife's face and all the blood. Chris, uh, Virginia turned towards Chris. He saw the bullet wound in, the, uh, in his wife's face and all the blood. Yeah, and eventually they start... They start fighting, actually, him and Chris uh, over the gun. And then he actually just leaves uh, Richard. He just runs out of the house because he figures that the police are going to come uh, soon. Yeah, he. Uh, um, a lot of these murders, they seem, you know, they they seem to follow a, a lot of. The, he just a lot this sort of same kind of script. He 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 comes in and he's and he's just shooting one family member in front of the other. 
he 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 just emerges out of out of the out of the shadows and and that's what he's doing, and it's it, it's not that different. I don't think with most of these. Peter and Barbara Pants, uh, this this Asian couple in their in in their home, um, and he put wrote Jack the knife on a bedroom wall. I don't know if that that's just another part of this sort of you know video game he's had inside his head, and um, but yeah. So so the thing is is that. There are also more sightings of Ramirez. There's a sighting of Ramirez in a library. Um, this guy said he saw this guy who uh, smelled really bad and really bad teeth, and he said he had eyes like a, like a dangerous animal. And and and, and he had said that he was trying to find out where the books on horoscopes and torture were. <laughs> he said it says, <laughs> it says this other division over here. But he always remembered this guy. He said because he had really incredibly scary eyes. And that's something people always say about Ramirez. Then he says a lot of serial killers. They have really frightening eyes and. In some cases, like Dean Coral, the Candyman of Houston, they have really they're sinister, scary looking, even as little kids. But with Ramirez, I don't you didn't see that in his little kid pictures. He becomes this guy. I don't think he was this guy by nature. I think he becomes this guy through a combination of the head injuries and the terrible influence of his cousin and brother in law and the and the total isolation. I think also Ramirez is isolated. He doesn't have anyone he's close to. He's in this crazy world in his own head. And 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 he has you know, he has these, you know, frequent psychotic delusions and everything like that. And these terrible, no one has any idea about this other than the family members who were into the same shit. But, um, but the thing is, is that you wonder if part of this whole thing, picking the, you know, leaving these things at the scene, leaving all the stuff, this is in some ways a recognition by society of this guy who's utterly invisible to them. Uh, even though he's can, carrying on this war in his head, He's seeking some level of having this brain. Um, Another one of his uh, crimes was with twenty-year-old uh, Bill Kearns, who lived with twenty-seven-year-old fiance Carol Smith. Bill was a computer programmer, so he opened his eyes, felt Carol next to him, saw the light of the flashlight, and as fast as he could move, started out of the bed, knowing somewhere in his mind the light meant the, the stalker pulled the trigger and shot Bill in the head, knocking him back as if he had been struck by a bat. He moved closer and shot Bill twice more, both times in the head. He saw movement on the, on the blanket. He said, "Who you know who I am to his wife. The stalker here, he asked, laughing. No, who are you? I'm the night stalker. Oh, God, no, she, she wailed. Don't say God, say Satan. Say you love Satan, he said, and slapped her so hard her ears rang. I love Satan, she said. He punched her in the face louder, his man. I love Satan, she said, terrified, trembling, and beginning to cry. Please don't kill me, please. On the surface, this would sound like almost like, you know, a, a little kid, you know, uh, Pull, you know, pulling a girl's pigtails. But of course, uh, what this actually is, is that he's provoking a fearful response in her uh, and uh, provoking her terror, which is arousing to him because of sexual sadism. And the thing about it is, is but there, but there is also still that whole, you know, don't say God, say Satan. It does kind of remind you of, of something, of something in like a, of a scene, of a scene with like bullies and stuff, you know, uh, you know, you might as well be, uh, setting fire to her pigtails or, or, uh, you know, <laughs> little kid, I, sh I, I shot something out of a squirt gun to a girl's hair because <laughs> I saw it in a, from a, 
It's it's funny to read because it's very hacky and sophomoric, I think. Even though it's obviously a very terrible thing that happens. You know, you know. It's it's both. It's both. Because <laughs> his whole thing is, is just he's just inside this imagined, you know, heavy metal video. That's kind of what it is. But it's, it's deadly serious to him. But at the same time, it's it's... It is hacky and ridiculous too, and it is a little kid game mixed with uh, a, a sexual sadist. That's really the scariest thing about uh, you know the, p- the potential situation of being targeted by a serial killer is that you suddenly have to you have to play along with their like their dorky little teenage you know fantasy that they're in. They put you in a situation where they're like, "Do it or I'll kill you," you know. But but they're fucking dorks. They're stunted people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, because he's just a guy, like you know, like he's just like this, this force of nature. But he's just a fuck a guy who likes ACDC and like and shit like that. But but yeah, so he he rapes her again, forces her to say that uh, she loves sa- Satan. Uh, and um, he laughed at her. He exited the house by the front door, um, calmly walking back to his uh, his stolen car. One of those, he was like, "Remember, <laughs> I love Satan." You know, I <laughs> think she said, oh, "I love Satan." And I was just like, <laughs> "Make this guy go away." But uh, I think I I think he did that in one case. The next one, I think he's going. They're going up to uh, San Francisco. I don't know why he goes up to San Francisco, but I bet you, in part, it's because you know he's been writing Jack the Knife on bedroom walls. I bet it's in part to try to create in the media's minds, in the public's mind, some more connection to Manson. Um, that I bet you that's part of it, because he could have um, he could have uh, just targeted someone in between Boston, uh, um, L.A. and San Francisco. Uh, I mean, there, there's there's plenty of. Uh, of uh, civilization in between LA and San Francisco, although the definition of civilization. <laughs> if you're people from where I'm from, San Francisco, Southern California, California. But the, this one um, was seen by a young man called James Romaro, who was on the other side of the street, and he took the plate of the man who had entered Bill uh, Kern's house, and then he eventually told his parents about that and they phoned the police at this time the you know the sketches are getting more and more accurate far closer to the details of, of his crime the details of him uh, people know about the toyota they know they kind of know what he looks like and the police are getting more and more information But he, but there's the mugshots are accurate. They see him in this library, and and eventually also one of the cops gets a tip and uh, to someone who they think knows it. And the top, cop in, interrogates this guy and threatens him. And normally you don't want to see cops threatening people, but in this case he got the name. He said Richard Ramirez, and apparently so they were just looking him up. So they they got they had the name, but they had no idea where he was because he's mobile. He's he's in his car. But what happens is, of course, is he takes a bus to Tucson to visit his brother. Um, I think that's Ruben, although I think he might have had more than one brother. And when he gets back to California, his picture's on everything. His mugshot's all over the papers. And uh, and he's recognizable 
And a woman on a bus, he gets on a bus and a woman says El Matador, <laughs> which isn't that, it doesn't mean the killer. Is that what that means? Or I don't know. I don't speak Spanish, but uh, he's, 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 uh, I think everyone was after him. He was, and and uh, he's eventually caught by the na- people in, in the neighborhood that he was in when he was uh, seen on the bus. I guess by that point, people have got his name and the, and the, the sketches are accurate and, and they can tell from it who he is. And there haven't been that many, uh, I mean, there have been Hispanic serial killers. There's a guy we covered earlier, the dating game killer, Rodney Alcaloff. He was from Mexico. And he was a bit of a Ted Bundy type. He traveled around in his car and he, he charmed people. But there aren't that many of those, there hasn't been that many of those. And this guy is obviously public enemy number one. So he's, he's, he's chased around this neighborhood. It, it's also worth noting that Richard Ramirez was a really, he's really, he was really fast. He was the the last time I think he could have maybe he was trying to forge a connection with his dad. He he was the quarterback on his junior high team, but he has a seizure in the middle of the, of one play and gets kicked off the team because because the coach doesn't want to have to deal with uh, lawsuits or anything like that. And suddenly his dad was really into him being a quarterback, and suddenly he's no longer a quarterback, and uh, and and his dad doesn't care anymore, and his dad can't go watch him play, and he thinks in his mind. That, that that's a direct curse from God or direct, you know, uh, invitation from Satan to do something else. And that's like the last moment he was on any sort of normal trajectory. And, uh, and, you know, things would have turned different. You know, he was, he's, he, he was reasonably tall, athletic, you know, uh, when he had his teeth fixed, he was a good looking guy. He, he had the great hair. He's a star quarterback. He would have been a chick magnet, <laughs> but, uh, and he, and, he's in, and, he, and maybe maybe he starts a rock band. I don't know, but obviously that's not what happened. But he's um, he he's uh, he he's uh, he's caught by the citizens in this neighborhood, and I know that that I think did a, a great deal to help LA move on from this because they'd caught the guy who was absolutely terrorizing them, who's carrying on this wartime campaign of terror like his cousin had in Vietnam, but in Los Angeles among his own people, and he's uh, he's taken out. Uh, or not taken out, but he's he's uh, pinned down by a bunch of guys in a Hispanic neighborhood um, uh, until the cops came in and, and brought him in, and uh, and they probably would have killed him had the cops not gotten there. Man, this part of the story is just so fucking funny to me. Like the idea of being just run down by an entire town—it seems like something that. <laughs> Has it happened in history for some time up until this point? Like it's it's very Middle Ages, you know. It's like they're yeah, it is fr- Frankenstein out of town or something. Um, Matador means killer. I had to look it up to be double sure because I was raised very gringo in uh, uh, Texas as uh, assimilationism is a thing where you don't teach your kids Spanish. But I it is it does mean bullfighter, but it also just means uh, killer. <laughs> well, would he have liked that or would you think he would have liked that the El Matador that's actually a pretty cool name for a serial killer I think he probably would have <laughs> yeah he probably, he probably would have and you know this is this is like the it is, it's like the medieval thing because it was a town and 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 I I think that Ramirez is in some ways like a Frankenstein's monster he's like this this misshapen creation um, of society and in a sense, he's also like you want to use another song from that period. Uh, he's like uh, the Iron Man, the Black Sabbath song. He's like the the, the, the the guy who's who's cast out of town and then comes back in to to uh, th- to take revenge on the town. I'm not sure that's how he thought of it as that. And uh, you know, he was an ACDC guy, but 
Um, it's 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 a little bit. He is this this like he is like the, those movies where they show that the, all the people with the torches and they have to go to the castle and the, and, and and it is like that. It's like that. <laughs> and the cops had 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 they'd done some work. They'd done some good work. It wasn't one of those cases like Dean Coral or Gacy where they were just completely ignoring it for decades. But it's it, it was more like. Um, like they just they just had no nothing none of the none of their uh profiling or basic cop science was helping catch this guy because as i said he's not he doesn't have the normal uh victimology of a serial killer he's essentially carrying on a wartime terror campaign um like his cousin so it's just that they that that instead of uh vietnamese uh, women it's it's just whoever's in the neighborhood wherever he is and it's anyone any race any age any uh any sex and the thing is is that 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 because he had reduced it to this basic level of predator and prey, this basic kind of wartime thing where all the societal structure is stripped away, having the, the I think the town just chase him down like in a medieval thing, that might have given them a sense that we have at least some level of we're not totally helpless, and we are like this is a monster, this is like you know it's, it's Satan's cabana boy and stuff, but um, but. <laughs> But but it, but he was the only one who was really blowing. He all these sort of court speeches, like he's giving these speeches, you know, where he's just these these canned lines, you know, he's beyond good and evil. This whole stuff, you know, he's, you know, you you, you are not made, to, you are not meant to understand this. It is beyond your understanding. You know, it's like <laughs> he is kind of hilarious in in court doing these speeches. He's, you know, uh, this this is you know so and that and in all the interviews he did, he did an interview with Maury Povich. That's the crazy thing of that time period. He was on from jail on a Maury Povich episode. The whole crowd is booing as he's going, you know, you know, Satan. It's like you would all you you'd be doing this too, you know, if you had it, you know, but you're stuck in your little you know boxes and stuff like that. Like boo, no, I wouldn't. I don't want to kill anybody. Yeah, you do. Everyone wants to kill people, and that's the other side of these types of guys. <laughs> these types of guys, they 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 eventually start thinking everyone's just like them, like kind of like um. You know, the Marquis de Sade saying that, you know, once people are, restra- are, are, are lifted from all restraints, they just become, uh, you know, uh, sadists and perverts like him, I guess. Or all these guys, they think that everyone's just like them. Or a joker, you know, it's like that. Every, everyone's just like them because because why wouldn't they be, you know? Yeah, they ha- very much have, like, a bad kind of open mic comedian mentality of, like, <laughs> You know, like he's like a teenager that just discovered Bill Hicks and thinks that he's like the voice. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's very much got like like that like you're living in your little boxes thing. That's a real quote from from one of the the tirades he went on. It's very like a hacking George Carlin kind of kind of mentality, and like he uh, that's a good way of rationalizing things from in a very narcissistic way. Uh, the idea that that he he just he's like everyone's like him he just sees through the bullshit is kind of what he's trying to get across you know to t- touch back a little bit for a second though on the on the the way he was arrested i feel like uh, as we are you know uh leftist guys and stuff here and we're doing a true crime podcast important thing to touch on here is the way this story has been told historically usually it we fu- usually true crime people find a way to congratulate the police for arresting uh, the guy and saving the day, right? That's usually the narrative of true crime. But I think the fact that he was run down by a mob of people from you know a neighborhood that is historically uh, you know uh, not really uh, 
socially funded and stuff like that. Um, it tells you something, and this happens a lot with with serial killers. And this kind of reminds me of something that happened in New York uh, a year or two ago when there was a, a, a fucking lunatic on the subways. Is what what happened with that guy uh, was that a bodega guy saw him and called the cops and said, I, it's, "It's fucking him." And the cops were like, "What?" And then he goes, no, he, "The bodega guy chases him down." And, uh, and, you know, eventually the bodega guy turns the fucking co- the guy into the cops, right? What, what's yeah. the story in the newspaper the next day? Police bravely apprehend the oh, fucking yeah. suspect. <laughs> it's like, it was yeah. the fucking bodega guy. It's us. They're just sort of take credit for things that happen socially. So, like, his capture is, is you know, a community effort, you know? Uh, the police are just the, the apparatus that gets to take credit for it and then, you know, that, that, uh, that we turn them into and are officially the institution. But uh, don't let us spin it like that. It was the mob. <laughs> it was the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. It, it was. It seems like a big part of, 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 of whether you have in these types of cases, of whether you have these types of cases resolve themselves in this way. Obviously, Ramirez did a whole lot of damage. Um Convicted of 43 charges, 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults. He, he and this is beyond 14 burglaries. This is beyond uh, even the the kid stuff, which they didn't prosecute. But the thing is, is that is that a lot of these kind of cases, a lot of what happens is there isn't a relationship between the neighborhood and the police, and it's usually as the police don't care or the community doesn't care, uh, uh, you know, about who's being targeted, but also. Sometimes there's a lack of trust, uh, you know, that's often very justified between the, 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 the people there and the cops. And, um, you know, we'll get, we'll get to it in a later episode. We're going to get to, uh, during the crack epidemic, in uh, Compton and some of the other neighborhoods that were stricken by it, uh, there were several serial killers operating uh, at the same time, independently, during that, uh, during that epidemic. Lonnie Franklin Jr. and Samuel Little among them. But the thing was is that it killed a whole lot of people. The thing is is that... The reason I think this partly works is you have this coordination uh, before the era of social media. You have this coordination, and you know because the, the the neighborhood has actual relationships with each other, and the cops do come along. But they mainly their their main thing in this case is that they stop that they stop uh, Ramirez from getting lynched by the mob. Effectively, they make sure that he gets to gets to trial. I don't think the cops did a particularly bad job on this case in the sense that it was a very hard to track. They uh, but. It was. It was the neighborhood. Um, well, and, um, another critique of the police as an institution here is that uh, one of the reasons that uh, a lot of serial killers and things like this went on, uh, but also specifically with California and the Night Soccer, is that different police departments were in competition with each other, so they wouldn't share yeah. evidence. And that's insane. You know, that's just an institutional failure right there, you know. That happened with that happens across state lines and within state lines. Yeah, it, it, it's it's hundred percent what it is. Um, they didn't have any idea that when Ted Bundy went from Washington State to Utah and then you know th- all throughout the country, all these different things, they're not sharing the information. And um, even though um, e- even 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 though there's some of the same, same descriptions, some of the same reports, and, um, and yeah, they are in competition with each other. And they also, I think, some of them think, well, it's not our responsibility if this happens in this other district. Um, and um, and so, but of course, with L.A., it's 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 not happening. And I mean, I don't know what, how the how the LA, how that that works out with the districts, but all this stuff is happening in L.A. and then in San Francisco and then back to L.A. Um, the the um, it's not one. It's not this one little pocket of of 
of a neighborhood of a city that's ignored or or not or one pocket of a population or one uh one uh you know county that you know and only that but yeah they don't they don't they didn't share information and uh i don't know i mean we've covered a couple times uh because of what happens with gacy the amber alert system happens so you don't have this you have to wait 72 hours to report some, uh, a missing kid um there's a lot some of these cases have a direct impact on investigations i don't know if ramirez did because but this was such a, a like a, a not even a case made for a movie, but the case was a movie. It was it was all over the the court case was all over the uh, all over the news. The investig you know all, just everyone was 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 terrified of this guy. Um, but yeah, the police they they um they did they did to some degree try to uh, make connections between because uh, the the San Francisco police did get in touch with L.A. police after they said that this guy has been leaving these things. But the L.A. police didn't know about that until the San Francisco police told them that. They didn't – there wasn't an automatic communication. They weren't putting it into the same database. Um, and if anything, Dianne Feinstein was, a, was the mayor of San Francisco at that time, mm-hmm. gave away some of the key evidence, you know, and uh, tells them, tells what pair of shoes Richard Ramirez. That was the one piece of evidence they had at that time was, was he had an unusual shoe. Apparently only one copy of the shoes has been sold in LA. He gets rid of the, he gets, he gets, he gets rid of that, uh, of that pair of shoes because of Diane Feinstein. Right. So my, I forgot about that. my view of Diane Feinstein is that she should have been voted out in the seventies and not leave, leave where things are now. Uh, aside, she should have been voted out of politics <laughs> because she she helped she 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 uh, she helped the Night Stalker get away. I mean that you would think that would be like that would it, nothing else would matter, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I she seems to be she she has powerful friends. I don't I, I don't know what's going on. I think that that she'll still be dead and they're fine with her serving in the because the Senate is a you know it, it is it is a it, it is a, a a buddy network so. Yeah, so we were on like uh, September the twentieth, nineteen eighty nine. It's like, oh, that's that's super close to when I was born. But like, Diane Feinstein stretches way back into the seventies, and she's been she's had that seat for for like a a lifetime, basically. Well, she was the mayor of San Francisco in the seventies, but yeah, she's she's an institution in Cal in, in San Francisco, kind of like how Alcatraz is an institution, and it was eventually closed down. But for some reason, they don't close down Diane Feinstein, and. Uh, I don't think her record is particularly strong, but I mean, whatever. It's uh, California has a history of. I I don't think they elect particularly uh, strong candidates in general um, for either uh, the Senate or for uh, their their local uh, officialdom. Maybe with maybe with a few exceptions, but um, uh, my parents spoke well of a couple of the San Francisco politicians, um, but in general. <laughs> I don't understand that that at all. But I, as I mentioned, I I, I was a baby uh, when he was killing people in San Francisco, and uh, and so uh, it, it, my my family was everyone was aware of this. Um, this is one of those cases where serial killing, you know, it isn't. It, you know, once again, it's not just that it's, it it could be the person next door. It's 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 in everyone's house now. Everyone is being invaded by these by these lunatics. Like Ramirez, and of course he fits out essential casting because he's got the the Satan thing. He's this heavy metal guy. He, I mean, you you do kind of think that every televangelist or whatever you had back then was just you know, and you know, kind of uh, perversely thankful that this guy provided the perfect vehicle for that because this guy is is you know the the uh, 
ideal manifestation of the public spheres and of, and of he's this, he, he's, he's, he's everything that people uh, not, you know, he's not the guy that hides in plain sight, even though he was, people didn't know who he was until he was caught. He, he's, he's, uh, he is exactly out of central casting, at least in the public imagination. So, Simeon or Jake, do you have anything else to say about this case before we, we head off? Jake, you got anything? Or? Um, I don't know. I don't know what my, what my Jerry Springer final thoughts are on the, uh, <laughs> the Night Stalker, man. He's, uh, the, the thing where he carved a pentagram into his hand is pretty crazy. Um, he's, uh, he's a disgusting person. Um, uh, he, but you know what? At least, at least, uh, uh, Mexican Americans from Texas got one on the board. You know, <laughs> yeah, he, he, uh, it's, no, it's no longer is very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, on this podcast, we, we haven't had a black killer yet. I'm, I'm getting anxious, you know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we've kind of skipped over uh, the, the Atlanta child murders for the same reason I think we skipped over the Boston Strangler, which is that there's some controversy over who did what and everything like that. But as we get in the 1980s, we will get to the black killers. We're, we're um, right now the most the the, the the most prolific serial killer in American history is uh, Samuel Little is a black killer. Uh, so it's just more that at the time this was that wasn't represented. But yes, a Mexican killer was represented in the case of Ramirez, uh, also in the case of Rodney Alcala. But that was a bit different. He he uh, he blended in. He was kind of like a as I say in English, kind of posh. You know that uh, Richard Ramirez is is a he, he's he's from the neighborhood. Yeah, um, no, I, I remember Patrice well. O'Neill uh, talking <laughs> about uh, like he didn't believe there were any black serial killers until he like did like a long web search and found out there were loads. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just it's just because you know um, prostitutes didn't matter and uh, black ladies didn't matter and and whoever they were killing didn't matter. Uh, Samuel Little mostly uh, mentally challenged women, uh, black and white, whatever he could prostitutes, whatever he could find. It's more they just weren't investigating the victims. And until they weren't finding that out, but you could not investigate Ramirez when that was happening because everyone in LA, absolutely everyone, was threatened. Um, I don't know if he went to Beverly Hills, but other than that, he could have. He, you know, it's like the Golden State Killer. You know, hundred, you know, all those rapes. He, 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 he busting people's houses. When you bust into someone's house, that's you know, that changes things. And this is another guy, I think, where you see the the a further step along the way of America becoming scared to death. Um, of of the kind of um, uh, country we're living, they're living in, and what it really is is it's all the stuff in World War II and Vietnam coming home to roost. It's all this, this these terrible eggs that were laid hatching, um, starting with World War II and going up through Vietnam and all and and, and the social chaos that's happening. But the thing is, is that Richard Ramirez is he think he seems like this guy from outside. He seems like this this you know demon hiding in the shadows and everything like that but whenever you have that it's always it's always the the demon is in the society and um that it's 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 always like the the demon in the shadows is kind of a reflection of something in the society and that's what happening happening here and what you see in the 80s is an escalation of of, of in the 70s it exploded in the 80s it escalates and reaches a peak and the country that you know we were all born in the 80s, I think. I don't know, Toby, you were born in the early 90s. I don't know what your date of birth was, but um, 
I definitely was not born in the 80s. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so early 90s. But if you were, but you know, if you were a kid like my half sister who was born in the 60s, and you know, or, or my parents born in the late 40s, you, um, it, it's a totally different time to grow up. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, terror poisoned environment, and we later we would have you know the war on terror after 9/11. We'd have, it, it's a scare, it's a scared country. It's a terrified country, more and more starting in the 70s. And really exploding the 80s. Because in the 70s, you still kind of, it's a, you know, you still take people taking it easy. But in the 80s, it's, it, Richard Ramirez is a major part of inaugurating a time where serial killing and all the terror and fear and, and um, suspicion associated with everyone being afraid of each other, everyone being, being um, you know, not a part of the same um, uh, civic order, everyone is a potential enemy, uh, that that's starting to happen and um you know in the year i was born kevin norman collins a little kid i think his name was who went missing and you know you had adam walsh a few years before that and i know my parents that's not why they had to move out of san francisco now there was richard ramirez but it's all it, you know it gets in the um it's in the it feel you know it, it's like you know everything more and more pissing on the the uh temporary uh Kind of uh, false tranquility of the 1950s, pissing on the, on 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 the flower power, pissing on everything that happens after that people think is going to um, usher in this peaceful new uh, dawn is actually just a prelude to a bunch of violence and disorder. To a degree, that's what happens. That's what this is. And I, I think that the impact of these kind of cases, it's still stuck in there. It's still stuck in our minds. We still have bad. It's still a bad dream. And um, and Ramirez is a guy who I think could have been given a few different rolls of the dice. Could have it's ended up, you know, as a star quarterback. Uh, you know, d you know, um, just sort of maybe he gets into heavy metal music and dope. Uh, maybe just as another guy who's just kind of, kind of a, kind of a little bit, a little the kind of guy, a little bit that some of the the moms in the neighborhood tell you to, to stay away from. And uh, but other, you know, because he's, you know, because he's gonna. gonna uh, if your girl is going to hit on you or he's going to show you uh, dirty pictures. But, you know, other, you know, I, I think that, that, that what he really was is his manifestation of everything wrong in society coming back to, to bring the war home and, um, and is an indicator of where things are going to keep going. And sadly, and still in some ways, I think we're still, we're still so scared of each other. We're still so fucked up in the head in this country. Excellent. So, um, We'll see you on the next episode where we dive deeper into the, the 1980s. Um, thanks very much for Jake Flores for, for your time here. I really enjoyed having you on. So for myself, from Simeon and from Jake, goodbye and see you on the next one. Goodbye. Thanks, y'all. See you later. Been fun.